Welcome back to the Book of Mormon with Grandma. We're going to be in chapter 17 through 19 today and a couple in chapter 20. Chapters 17 and 18 are some history during Isaiah's time and Isaiah trying his best to convince Ahaz and the or has, and the Jews to listen to him and to trust in the Lord. He tries telling them what's coming for them if they don't. But to understand these chapters of 2 Nephi and Isaiah 7 and 8, we need to make a run back to the Old Testament and find out why he's talking about the three different kingdoms who are at war with each other. I'll try to give you a nutshell version, not complete for sure, but a quick background. But you could go to 2 Kings to get the whole story. After Solomon died, there was a division between everyone about taxes. Rehoboam was king after his father Solomon died, and the people were heavily taxed in order to build up the government. Rehoboam refused to give any relief and threatened to raise taxes instead, so it caused a division among the people. This division caused such an upheaval that uh, some of the tribes refused to follow him as king, and so the tribes became divided into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the king over the southern kingdom, and it was composed of Judah and most of the tribe of Benjamin. They were situated in Jerusalem and stayed in power there until 587 BC. They became the kingdom of Judah or the house of David. Of the 20 rulers who were in charge of Judah, once they divided, and until they were taken captive by the Babylonians, 12 of those kings were wicked. Isaiah was one of the prophets who was sent to call the the southern kingdom to repentance. Jeroboam was to be the new king over the northern kingdom, and it was composed of the remaining ten tribes, and it was called Ephraim. Its capital city was Samaria, and they also had twenty rulers until they were destroyed by the Assyrians. All of their kings were wicked. Seven were murdered, and one committed suicide. One of their prophets was Elijah the prophet. The Lord had told Israel way back when they first entered the promised land that if they decided to choose a king to be over them, that they should establish some criteria for the kings. And the main one is that it it had to be one chosen by the Lord. But there were several other things that they were to follow. Since neither kingdom followed the criteria for their kings, they both had gotten to this point of being corrupt and wicked. You could go to the Bible, the LDS version of the Bible, and look on the maps. It looks like they're maps 7 and 9, and that'll show you the places we're talking about. And this is what brings us again to this point in Isaiah's book where he tells us what's happening with these three kingdoms. Judah, whose leader is Ahaz, or Ahaz, whatever you want to call him, Ephraim, whose leader is Pekah, and Syria, whose leader is Rezin. Syria, who is up above or north of the northern kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, as is now called, would go back and forth between the two kingdoms as being a friend or an enemy. I can imagine it depended on the day. Ephraim had formed an alliance with Syria to gain protection from Assyria. They asked Judah to join the alliance, and Judah said no. So now they're mad, and they're going to attack Judah. When Judah found out that the two had made an alliance with each other, they were a little bit afraid. But Isaiah tells Ahaz not to worry about the countries because they are smoking firebrands. So think about this. If something is smoking, what does that say about the fire they once had? It's gone out. They're burned out. They have no more strength. Isaiah was told by the Lord to tell Ahaz not to try to align himself 
with any other entities to try to defend himself and his people, that the Lord would defend and protect them if he trusted in him. But he did not believe, and he formed an alliance with Assyria and took the temple treasury money and tried to buy protection from Assyria to protect them from Syria and Israel. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 722 BC. Some of those who were lost at the time were what we know as the lost ten tribes of Israel. Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask the Lord for a sign that this prophecy of his, that in 65 years the northern kingdoms would be scattered, to ask the Lord for a sign if this was true. But Ahaz rejected everything that Isaiah told him and essentially did not believe him, and nor did he trust the Lord. He trusted himself and Assyria. In that moment when Ahaz could have changed things, he set the fate of Judah by rejecting the Lord, Isaiah, and the prophecy. Andrew Skinner says the nation of Judah would eventually have a redeemer, but the king of Judah will eminently have a destroyer, the king of Assyria. What Ahaz wanted is what he got. So some 21 years later, Sennacherib and his army would come in and lay siege to Judah and Jerusalem in 701 BC. To lay siege means to surround or try to conquer. Sennacherib was unsuccessful at taking them captive when an angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 of the Assyrians and he was forced to go back to Assyria. Judah was attacked many times between this time and the time when they actually fell and were taken captive. But just so the timeline is clear, Ahaz dies at age 36 and his son Hezekiah takes over for him. Lehi leaves in 600 BC when Zedekiah was the final king of Judah. And in 587 to 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and destroys the temple and the city and takes Judah captive, which is the time Isaiah talks about when he talks about them being in captivity. We didn't spend any time really in 18 because it was really more of the same warning, but the first verse of 19 belongs with the 22nd verse in chapter 18. It's like a continuing thought. He's saying that when it all comes down to the end, that instead of repenting, there will only be darkness because they're in captivity and they'll curse God because of their situation. But when he moves on to 19, he says, those people that walked in darkness will eventually see the light. After all the things that happened to them when taken into captivity, something great and wonderful will come, a light that would bring joy, Jesus Christ. The tribe of Judah will not totally be destroyed, and some of their tribe will return to Jerusalem because the Savior will come through the tribe of Judah, or the house of David, as it is called. So verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with the word for. Isaiah is telling them all the reasons that there will be rejoicing. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Breaking the yoke of his burden was Israel being in bondage and captivity, and bringing them out from their oppressor. Okay, back to five. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. It's interesting, that phrase, for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. This is mostly in five is talking mostly about the second coming but what do you think that phrase means every battle of the warrior is with confused noise well think about it when we're in the middle of a war or a battle things can become confusing the sounds the changes the people 
We today are in this battle, a battle with Satan for our souls. This time we live in has extreme wickedness. It can be hard to choose which way to go, and we can become confused with all the noise. People are getting lost in the war with Satan, but the Lord has promised us if we stay faithful, when the end comes, those who have caused us or wished us harm will be destroyed. So again, mostly that's talking about the second coming, that there will be a time when the wicked will be destroyed, and all because of what comes next. This is in verse 6. I love these verses because of all the names the Savior's given. Such a beautiful description of the Savior. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So the first line, for unto us a child is born, is referring to when Jesus is born. But the rest of six and all of seven, when we get there, talks about the second coming. Because when he comes the second time, the government will literally be on his shoulders. President Jeffrey R. Holland said the fact that the government would eventually be upon his shoulders affirms what all the world will one day acknowledge, that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and will one day rule over the earth and his church in person with all the majesty and sacred vestments belonging to a holy sovereign and a high priest. All can take comfort from the fact that because the government and the burdens thereof will be upon his shoulders, they will be lifted in great measure from our own. This is yet another reference in Isaiah to the atonement, the bearing away of our sins, or at the very least in this reference, our temporal burdens on the shoulders of Christ. That was from his book, Christ in the New Covenant. Andrew Skinner also says about the title counselor, he says, think of all the money spent on counselors. If only people would turn to him, the counselor, the Lord's celestial self-reparation package called repentance is better than all the terrestrial self-help and self-esteem building seminars, recordings, and texts. Jesus is also our counselor in a legal sense. He is our advocate with the Father. He will plead our case before him. He also says about the title Everlasting Father, he says this, He is referred to as the Everlasting Father because he can hold the title Father and Son, the Son because he was begotten by the Father, and the Father because he is the Creator or Father of the earth. Okay, let's go on to verse 7. This talks about the government. Of the increase of government and peace, there is no end. This is, um, by the way, the Lord's government. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So when it's all over, the Lord's government will be established and there will be peace. Again, listen to President Holland. With the phrase Prince of Peace, we rejoice that when the king shall come, there will be no more war in the human heart or among the nations of the world. This is a peaceful king the king of Salem, the city that would later become Jerusalem, Christ will bring peace to those who accept him in mortality in whatever era they live, and he will bring peace to all those in his millennial and post-millennial realms of glory. Again, that was from his book, Christ and the New Covenant. So now that Isaiah has told them about the Savior coming to save them and to help them, he now turns back to why Israel gets into trouble in the first place. He tells them four things that they were doing that caused this. I kind of got took this from one of the scholars uh, from his book, um, and this is what he said. The first thing was pride. 
They did not include the Lord in anything they did. They felt they were smart enough and wise enough to do it alone. The second thing is they had leaders who caused them to err. This is in verse 16. For the leaders of this people caused them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. And the third thing is in verse 18. For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Wickedness is the third thing. I think, do we realize how fast a fire can envelop things? If we think about it, wickedness burneth like a fire. Wickedness can spread very quickly. And we have to go to chapter 20 to get the last one. This is number four. They neglected the poor and the needy. This is in verse one of chapter 20. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that write grievousness, which they have prescribed, to turn away the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Now we hear Isaiah's answer to all of this. It's found in several verses in chapter 19 and once here in chapter 20. And this is the answer. For all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. Many people feel that this is the Lord's anger continuing to bring to bring punishment or is stretched out still threatening to bring punishment. In Hebrew, it means that the hand is hanging over, threatening or bent, so they feel it's a threatening gesture. But one just needs to go to 2 Nephi 28.32, and this is what it says there, Woe be unto the Gentiles, saith the Lord God of hosts. For notwithstanding, I will lengthen out mine arm unto them from day to day. They will deny me. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me. For mine arm is lengthened out all the day long, saith the Lord God of hosts. So for me... I choose to think that no matter what we do in this life, no matter how many times we might mess up, that the Lord is still there extending his arm of mercy to me, beckoning me to come back and allowing me to start over. So, until next time. 